Hello, everybody. Welcome to another amazing episode of The Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Thorpe, joined by Andrew Harlick, and this is going to be episode 133. We're finally back from our hiatus, joined by one of the most sought-after guests, Sir Richard Taylor, who is the founder, creative director, and the head of New Zealand's legendary Weta Workshop. Join us as we go in-depth on Richard's backstory, how he started the workshop, and where he hopes to take it in the future. We cover everything from Richard's personal aspirations, how he cultivates creativity in his talented team, and how he manages a hectic schedule while maintaining strong personal values and relationships. Seen as Richard has worked on some of the most iconic projects in the history of entertainment, it's quite a treat for us to have had this opportunity. So we really hope you enjoy his insight as much as we did. Here we go, everybody. Episode 133 with Richard Taylor. Um, first and foremost, thank you so much. Um, there's been so many requests that we've had from audience members to have you on your quite the spokesman for the creative community, especially from what you've created down at the Weta Workshop down in New Zealand. So thank you first and foremost for being here and sharing your time with us. I know it's very precious. You're a very busy person, especially getting to meet you and hearing kind of what's been keeping you busy. Uh, I was kind of blown away. You got this Elon Musk level amount of prolificness going on down there. So it's <laughs> it's quite amazing. So thank you. Great. Uh, it's my pleasure to be talking uh, with you and sharing any thoughts we can with anyone that's interested around the creative community. Awesome. Well, I wanted to start it off with kind of talking about your origin, kind of where you come from, and and your like the, the some of the things in your in your childhood that kind of sparked your creative pathway, basically, and some of the education and just some of the things that you were interested in as a child and where that kind of led you. Very good. Well, uh, my story is not uh, one that uh, would naturally lead you to think of our career today, and it's not a particularly exciting story, unfortunately. I I was actually totally unaware of the film industry until my late teens. Uh, I grew up in rural New Zealand uh, in a small community uh, called Tihihi, uh, which was uh, a community of about I don't know, 14 to 20 farming families based wow. around an intersection with a petrol station and a primary school. And uh, that was what, that was all Tihihi really was. But to me, it was a charmed upbringing. I, uh, we emigrated as a family from England when my father was offered a job at Air New Zealand as an aircraft engineer. And uh, it would have made sense for our family to live near to the airport to make his life easier. But my mother was of the view that if we'd come from uh, from the UK and uh, moved to this beautiful paradise country, then we'd better go out and live in the countryside <laughs> for the benefit of the children. And uh, we ultimately ended up um, uh, taking what's called a share milkers cottage. It's a small little cottage that uh, the the people that contract to the farm would live in. And I spent uh, the first uh, half of my youth in that little rented house. Uh, My dad had to drive an hour either way to work. (laughs) My mother was a science teacher and my dad was an engineer. So art was almost completely non-existent in uh, our home and my upbringing um, in the way that you would imagine someone like myself uh, having access uh, to art. Uh, but um, 
the countryside growing up in that environment uh, was incredibly uh, stimulating for me. Uh, from the earliest age, I just knew that I wanted to I didn't think about it as wanting to do art because I don't think in the early 1970s you really thought about it in that manner. I just knew that I wanted to make things with my hands. Uh, I started digging clay out of a creek on the back of our farm and uh, making sculptures out of that out of that clay, and I taught myself a great deal. My dad had a a, a one car dirt floored shed out the front of our um, property where he was built he built our car he built a boat uh, he built most of our furniture (laughs) and although he didn't um, directly go hey this is how you do it I would just sit out there with him and 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 I had the great pleasure of absorbing it I guess I ended up going to a secondary school which was a a uh boarding school for uh, Māori and Pacific Island uh, boys primarily. We lived uh, just down the road, so I was a day boy, but um, that was an interesting experience. The the art at the school, it was New Zealand's oldest school, but the art at the school didn't exist beyond the fifth form, and I knew that I wanted to do art. So I had the great uh, fortune of being able to establish uh, the art course along with the uh, the person that had um, taken on the art role and managed to do it through the fifth, sixth, and seventh form. And um, at about the age of 14, my parents bought a 10-acre block of land and my mum, my dad, and I started a five-year odyssey to build a house. And uh, we built the house almost entirely by hand. Wow. Um, I built a third of the house alongside my mum and my dad. So uh, that experience of building that house, that and this was every evening and every weekend right through all my exam years, so quite a lot of pressure um, to get uh, through school while trying to build a house uh, <laughs> and, and build it entirely by hand. Wow. Uh, we... Um, I learned uh, a phenomenal number of skills in the process of building that house that I see as the base uh, learning that I've utilized throughout my career today. And uh, and although I don't mix concrete for a career, the process of, uh, of building, constructing, mentally problem-solving, uh, as you have to do when you're doing everything in the construction of a house – uh, has set me up well for a, a sort of a an appreciation of methodologies and uh, how to process things. Uh, the best I could visualize for my art aspirations was a career in the theatre. And I, in fact, uh, got a job interview with New Zealand's largest theatre group and travelled the one hour into Auckland on the bus, uh, took my portfolio, Uh, I sat on the front steps waiting for the chap to turn up who was going to interview me for a whole day. I think I was there maybe between 11 and 13 hours. I sat on that, uh, on those stairs. Um, I had a little cry. Uh, (laughs) I realized uh, that I didn't realize at the time that probably just a, 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 this is life before cell phones, of course, so you couldn't just quickly ring someone up. Uh, And I didn't think that maybe there was just a cock up in the schedule, 
I, I saw it as an ill omen that uh, it wasn't to be. And so I went home and never thought about the theatre again hmm. and uh, made a decision uh, that I would move to uh, Wellington, which was nine hours drive from where I was growing up. Uh, I had had the great fortune of meeting my wife-to-be at the age of 13 where wow. we became soulmates. And um, <laughs> and uh, we've been together, I think, 38 years now. And, uh, wow. wow. And my, yeah, and my wife and I moved to Wellington when we were 17. Um, uh, we, we did our studies and then set up our uh, workshop in the back room of our flat and we've been running that company now for 27 years so um, uh, that's really how it started I discovered the film industry or I discovered the television industry because in my third year at Polytech where I was doing graphic design we had the great uh, opportunity to create a TV commercial uh, to try and replicate a TV commercial that was already on television as an exercise for our studies. And most of my um, classmates uh, d- didn't have a great interest in this, uh, in this subject matter, but I myself personally discovered that it fulfilled so much of my creative aspirations of building things, creating things three-dimensionally, art directing things, uh, working with teams of people, uh, in a collegiate way, and I realized that this uh, was potentially the future for me. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, <laughs> from, from, from hearing where your parents come from and how your dad was an engineer and how you would build cars and, and how you built the, the house, I can definitely see how that instantly translates to problem solving on a very massive scale and then using your hands and your mind to problem solve and then also working on something that is very tangible and connected with the the ability to sustain your life, which is creating your own house. I can see how that definitely translates. And it's also really quite amazing to hear that you met your soulmate at 13 and you've been working with her ever since, you know, at the Weta workshop, which is also yeah, really we, beautiful too. This is really awesome. Yeah. yeah, we're very, we're very lucky. We sit, we sit within touching distance of each other. She hasn't arrived at work yet because she's <laughs> the children off at school, but we, you know, we we are able to interact with, uh, together around our work uh, every every um, day, which is a pleasure for us. Uh, um, and you know, we we do this in a very collegiate, uh, collaborative way around our friendship and love of what we do. Uh, so that that's a wonderful thing for us. You know, with respect to your summing up just before. If I bottle what we do down to a singular aspiration, what I say to people that are interviewing with us is it's simply just a love of making, a love of making things. It is a terrifying thought to me that we should enter the new millennium of this um, new century where as a population on the planet, we become focused on digital resolution on Ikea furniture-like environments where everything is vanilla-flavored, everything is tasteless, nothing has textural, um, organic, visceral qualities. And to me, the, the future that 
the human race deserves to experience is one that is tactile, textural, craft-based, organically built, uh, one-off, bespoke uh, construction Mm. to the highest level possible. And I always aspired to build a workshop that would offer as many people as possible an opportunity to wield that creative spirit around the love of making. And uh, when you visited our workshop, Ash, I hope that what you saw was, you know, (laughs) I I call it an artisan studio. We're not a film company. We don't solely work on films. We're not focused on just creating images for a screen. We're focused on servicing the world's creative community in an effort uh, to to make things that are, um, that are inspiring and beautiful and craft based yeah. uh, for the people of the world, and that that's that's very much my core aspiration. It's a beautiful aspiration and a really good mission statement too, and it's very pure and and direct and honest. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think that there is something about the tangibility of creating and working with your hands or your mind and, 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 and fending through time to create something. I'm really into cars. So I understand the engineering behind things and also working on cars and, um, fixing things and enjoying them on that purpose is really great. And it's quite interesting also to be a a child that was born in the eighties and then moving into what is currently the digital age. And, you know, as you said, resolution and then the Ikea furniture, which is quite funny actually, because I just bought another uh, shelf and I had to get it from Ikea because it was the only one that I could get that would fit. And I had like a little budget for it. And I was thinking to myself, like Ikea is, is, is um, what it is. It's, it, it works and it makes sense, but it isn't, um, it's, it's, it's exactly like what you said. It doesn't have that tactile thing. And when I was going through your workshop, um, it was like, I had, um, I was, I had an overload basically. Like it was hard for me to process all the, the, that was going around the tactile. Like I just wanted to sit in one corner and look at all the things around me. And, you know, there's like there's swords and there's miniatures and big miniatures. I forget what the, what the, the term you yeah, coined it. Yeah, bigotures, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw a lot of that. And just there it just in meeting people and friends and people that I've admired their work. It was just it was quite incredible. And and obviously, I mean, it, it takes um it takes an army to make an army, basically, and it takes somebody to really facilitate that. And um it's really cool. I, I mean, first and foremost, I just really appreciate the fact that you've put that together and then also everybody that's been a part of you. Um, creating the Weta workshop has really been incredible. So what's the future like look like for you at the workshop? Because you're talking a little bit about the future. What's what What are you thinking that's leaning towards? Because I know we can't talk about certain projects and stuff and certain things, but just more or less curious about where, you're, where your head is heading for the, the workshop itself. Um, well, my head, I if one was to visit the workshop, they may uh, contradict my my comment right now, which is I'm not an empire builder. I, I don't. We we run five businesses out of this one company. We've got on average 350 staff working across that those five businesses. Uh, but it, none of it is in it is because I'm aspiring to build bigger business. It's about opportunity building. Uh, I, I have this insatiable desire to fill any crack that may open up in my schedule with another creative opportunity uh, because, um, you know, we, 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 we're on a planet for such a short length of time. Yeah. I'm one 
of 7.4 billion people that are bleeding this precious um, place of its resource. And my, my sort of holistic view of it is that it's critical that I put back into uh, into this place the maximum I can for the time that I'm here. So I, I won't allow a minute to be un, uh, underutilized uh, in my life. Um, and if I'm not uh, servicing uh, my professional creative aspirations here at the workshop or through our children's television production company or through our publishing arm or through our merchandising business or through our tourism endeavors, uh, I want to be doing it at a hobby level with my family. And indeed, that's uh, exactly what we do. Uh, so, you know, looking into the future, uh, in a perfect world, I'd be still doing exactly what we're doing today, 25 years from now, with exactly the same group of people that we're doing with it today. Awesome. Uh, many of our staff have been with us uh, coming up to 20 years um, uh, of uh, of working with us, uh, some have been with us over twenty years, and there is a great benefit and um, longevity of uh, of employment because you you are working with friends uh, as opposed to work uh, colleagues, where it's intuitive what each other is thinking and aspiring to, and that that makes for a, a very fertile environment that can produce a lot uh, with little being said. And um, I think that's a, a nice place to get to. I obviously have my own personal aspirations. I'd love to see us uh, put the collection of props that we have uh, built over the years into a permanent place here in Wellington for people to enjoy. Um uh, I'm very much of the view that when you build the object for a film or a TV show, it is a prop. But once the movie or, film or TV show is finished, it becomes an artifact. It, it is a work of art created by a group of people. And it's beholden on someone like myself to treasure that artifact and make sure that it has uh, a viewing uh, to people that are interested in it. I, I liken our collection to owning a, a Renoir and hanging it on the back of our toilet door. Uh, only myself, <laughs> very few people get to see it. But of course, you want to, you want as many people that have an interest in these sorts of lovely objects to see it also. Yeah. Uh, I have a wonderful and long-term uh, relationship with Roni and the team at Magic Leap. Mm, and uh, yeah. we've been involved with that for seven years now, and I've been on the board for a number of years, and I, I have great aspirations for uh, the extraordinary things that are happening there. Uh, I, have a, I do a great deal of work in China, and I've been going up there for 18 years now. In fact, I was up there the week before last having the great pleasure of, um, of being hosted by Madam Peng, the First Lady, and the Hall of the People in Tiananmen Square. That must and, have been insane. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's great that, um, uh, because Madam Peng is focused on bringing uh, heightened levels of creativity into the world and uh, very much is, shares our view that uh, for the world to go forward in a better way, uh, it will be generated from the creative uh, skills and aspirations of young people 
uh, yet to make their mark uh, on the world stage. That's so cool. I mean, it's to think that your trajectory would lead you to these different things, I guess, keeping it your trajectory quite open, honest, clear and direct. It just kind of helps with your destination, right? Yeah. uh, You know, it's interesting. You should say the words you do, because to me, go hard out, go clean and go creative really is at the heart of what people like ourselves and those that are probably listening to this um, you know, if you can keep your moral compass set well, uh, if you go hard out at it every day, because you can't do a creative career with a hobby-like mentality, yeah. not today. There, there is such steep competition, but more importantly, our audience deserves such a commitment of energy and effort and inspiration and new ideas uh, in the world, um, and of course, at the heart of it is a desire to just, just, just cr- be creative in every single thing that you do, in every way that you walk. You know, there's two types of people in the world: those that look at the world and those that observe the world. And I think hmm. that those that observe the world probably make up less than five percent of the world's population. Those are the people that are able to observe it and then share creative vision back to the 95% that are just walking through it, looking at it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a blessed place to be. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's a brilliant way of putting it too, because it is about observing and then, you know, realizing and then throwing it through your own personal creative filter and then outputting that and seeing what creative voice comes out and how that attracts your own personal audience. And then it just spawns from there, as you can probably imagine. Talking about physical locations, uh, I had a chance to, in the very brief time that I was there, I was only in New Zealand for three days, unfortunately. I, I could have spent weeks there. I just would just really fell in love with the place. It's similar to where I grew up in Hawaii. It has a similar energy. Um, but I got a chance to see the, um, the Te Papa Museum with the... Um, the amazing larger, larger than life scale of that war that yes. you had that, that, that was just, um, yeah, I went with Miche and we were just pretty much just floored by the level of refinement. And, um, I heard through the grapevine that that was one of your most pride, pride, prideful projects that you had to be, a, that you were a part of. And I'd love to talk or just hear a little bit about, you know, how that got started and, you know, your thoughts on the process of making that and all that good stuff. I, I- I greatly appreciate um, your response to that because it oh. is people like yourself and Marche that I I hope understand the the sort of the subtleties of an exhibition such as that. Um, what Ash is referring to is an exhibition that we were invited to design and curate along with our colleagues at uh, the National Museum Te Papa to uh, commemorate uh, the 100-year anniversary of a of probably New Zealand's most critical war. It's, it's a campaign uh, on a uh, piece of land called Gallipoli in Turkey. And uh, why is it critical? Because New Zealand had just entered the war. We were a colony of England. We were very much treated with the mentality of a disposable army that could be um, thrown into this campaign, no, even though the campaign made little sense. 
It was a thankless, brutal, uh, terrible war. Uh, New Zealand lost an extraordinary number of casualties uh, per head of population. Uh, it has had generational impact across time in our country. And the response of New Zealand to the futility of this war was really one that changed us from a colony to a nation. It was the catalyst that allowed us to get our own voice and to step outside of the that extreme control of the British Empire. Although we are still and proudly part of the Commonwealth, um, we are an independent, proud nation in our own right uh, today, and a great deal can be acknowledged back to that war. Uh, so every year uh, we have dawn services throughout New Zealand. We're a huge part of the New Zealand's public come out to remember the men that lost their lives. So be, to be offered this opportunity uh, was extraordinary. Now, initially, we actually didn't have the opportunity. We were designing under the uh, leadership of other people the original CEO of Tipapa and, in fact, Peter Jackson were going to do the exhibition. Um, the CEO moved on, and Peter uh, got the opportunity to do a broader um, exhibition in a permanent home in the old National Museum uh, called The Great War. And he ultimately went on uh, to produce this extraordinary exhibition about the history of the whole of the First World War. Uh, wow. And we, we, we made uh, models, mannequins, uh, uh, dioramas for that exhibition. But um, it left this uh, an open hole, I guess. The board of Te Papa um, phoned me up and asked if I would take on uh, the overall exhibition uh, the opportunity to, you, you can appreciate that you can't welch at a moment like that, knowing the subject matter. Yeah. What, what I asked, though, was that if I was to take it on, I would want to start entirely again. I, I wouldn't want to utilize the work that had been done in any way by the previous team, and I would want to approach it in a totally different and arguably quite unique way. And um, all good grace to uh, the Te Papa board. Uh, they agreed, and all good acknowledgement to the Te Papa team. Uh, they embraced the idea of working with this this creative effects company from uh, from Wellington, and uh, and indeed uh, uh, embraced what we uh, wanted to do. So at the heart of the exhibition, how do you tell the stories of ghosts from our past in the present in a way that will have impact and meaning on the youth of today? Uh, very, very challenging. These were ordinary men that went into extraordinary circumstances and how we chose to do it, and we called the exhibition Gallipoli, The Scale of Our War, was to acknowledge, I'm very much of the view that you can't tell the story of an army with meaning, but you can tell the story of individuals with pathos and impact and through their individual stories tell the story of the army. And uh, so we good. chose eight unique New Zealanders 
And through their stories, we made pillars of their memories by creating them at two and a half times life size in exacting detail. But much more importantly than the detail is the theater of body language, of of purpose. The The exhibition will regularly cause people to break down in tears to find solace. Uh, many of the families of the of the lost soldiers now use the exhibition as their graveside, as their place of remembrance of their spiritual connection to their loved ones. And uh, it's now broken. It's now it's nearly topped a million visitors for a country of only four million people. Wow is is quite significant so it's incredible um, it really yeah. is incredible the the him though the scale and the the tension and the mood and you know when you enter each one of these rooms you um as an observer i didn't know what to expect and and going in there and and just kind of you have it absolutely right psychologically we identify with singular rather than a, a number of army basically and um not only was it just the this, the grand scale and the the of course incredible craftsmanship of the works I, I that was really hard to really process just how accurate everything was at that scale at two and a half times but also the the letters um being projected on the walls and the actual occurrences of things i just uh it was incredibly intimate and um I think, you know, you may be um, taking a leap here, but working on films and and doing fantasy and and making the monster of the week for Xena and stuff like that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Those have their place in the creative realm. But like, as you mentioned, when this offer came to you, um, it has a deeper core meaning. And if you can use your craft and your team and to really create a situation for a viewer like myself to really kind of get completely immersed and, and engaged emotionally, I think it's quite exquisite and yeah it was just thank you for creating that with the team because it was just it was really something else i was just kind of really blown away by it and i just yeah still it still sits with me i I still remember some of the expressions and especially the last one at the one at the end was just the way you exit it and how it was and the way it said it and just had such a good um well not good it had just such a presence basically and i don't want to spoil it for anybody it was just thank you um you know that the reality is Ash, that people, for the most part, like yourselves and us, we're service providers servicing other people's stories, other people's visions. And yeah. you give it your all. You, you you throw yourself at it wholeheartedly. Depending on the client, you're often given incredible freedom to offer creative input. You can even influence the script through creative input. But at the end of the day, it's their party and you've been invited to visit. Um, The beauty of this exhibition uh, is it's really one of the few times that the Weta Workshop uh, and myself have had the opportunity to have our voice uh, and do it as we would choose without um, needing to um, kowtow to to others um, respectfully, but... uh, and that that has been um, a delightful experience for us. It's given a sense of pride to our team uh, that goes beyond the ability to just work on someone else's film, even though we're very 
filled with pride around that work. It, it would be very disingenuous to your efforts to not be pride-filled because yeah. if you're not proud of the results of your own work, you've in somehow shortchanged the project. And um, But, you know, what, what I hope one of the big challenges in our career, what we do, what you do, what many of the people doing here, the reality, the sad reality is that while your audience are watching your content or visiting your exhibition, at the forefront of their mind is, is what time do I have to pick up the children? Is it going to be Burger King or McDonald's for lunch? <laughs> uh, has, has hubby uh, got his cell phone on? Uh, because the harried nature of modern life demands that our lives are schedule-driven and distraction-focused. Uh, the exhibition, what, one of the prerequisites that I put to the designer at Te Papa, uh, Ben Barad, who did such an extraordinary job of realizing my aspirations, to see us enter a labyrinth, a, a linear journey, labyrinth-like museum experience, that immediately distances you from modern, the modern world. Within a minute of stepping into the exhibition, yeah. you're so disorientated by the architecture and so um, disconnected from the museum that you've just stepped out of into this world. And then couple that with the soundscape, the voices, and the beautifully orchestrated soundtrack that uh, Tane Upjohn Beaton did for the overall exhibition, you, you hopefully uh, take people and transport them to a different place in a different time. You're not trying to take them back to Gallipoli, but you're trying to take them into an in-between world between their modern life and the realities of this historical moment where they can absorb, contain it, imagine it, visualize it, and come to love it, come to love the content and love the stories and take them away with them with love and respect. And that's a very, very tricky piece of alchemy yeah. uh, that you're trying to do with something like this. Well, what you're saying, the path that you're hoping for, your the intention as a, as a designer of this the experience, it was very close to the experience in which I went through, and I believe from Mache's reactions, the same as well. It was really great. I really strongly suggest everybody get a chance when you're out in New Zealand to check it out. It's, it's, it's incredible. One thing I really would love to talk to you about um, is something that I've found through watching and listening to all the Lord of the Rings um, the appendices. appendices. Yeah, appendices, which is Andrew is a huge fan of as well. Um, <laughs> we're both quite big fans of it. And it's I love that Peter or whoever made the decision to document all that I thought was quite brilliant because it is a journey. And sharing that journey creatively with everybody is quite amazing. One thing I was always kind of struck me before even meeting you is your ability to lead people. And um, how, do, how do you go about that? Is that? Does that come from your childhood or is this something that you've slowly learned? I mean, I, I remember listening to um, one of the, the experts uh, was that you were giving everybody a kind of a, all the... The, the monsters basically a uh, chant basically before they were going to go into battle and you were saying like you know be savage and, and all these things and it was it was quite unique and I was just curious is do you have like a somebody that you look to for these kind of things or is this some kind of you know something that you've learned along the way or no I, 
once again, uh, maybe unusually, um, my life uh, hasn't been one that's been um, inspired by mentors because growing up in the environment I did and uh, being sort of self-motivating around what I wanted to do, um, mentors didn't play a part in it. And uh, interestingly, and maybe which is the case with many people that may be listening, I myself was actually very shy and a very reserved person as a young person. Um, at the age of 15, I couldn't ever have imagined uh, having the sense of purpose to stand up in front of an army of people, hmm. more importantly, a crew uh, uh, of, of your fellow colleagues and, and doing something such as the thing you describe. And should I have chosen a different career and done something different, um, it may be the case that I would still be very reserved and very uh, collected and, um, and not feel a need to be um, outward uh, speaking. But it's a situation that demands it. That situation that was a, a, an impulsive moment where I felt that all the effort that we had made for all those years to build that those characters w was going to be less than it could be if I didn't step up and try and motivate them into who they should be. Mm. And and I very much, I very much find that um, my forward uh, nature around leadership or the desire to share thoughts and comments with others is driven by a situation that requires it. I don't have a great desire to be heard. I don't feel a need to get on the stage and stand in front of thousands of people for my own sake. Uh, but I certainly will go out and lecture to a school a university of people or a school of kids or, or stand in the eight, H uh, Hall in Comic Con in front of eight thousand people. If it um, if it requires um, if it benefits others from hearing what I have to say, and I very much uh, have grown into this role, uh, one I didn't have the attributes of when we first started, and very thankfully we've been able to grow into it. Uh, over time, you know, initially it was for, for five years, it was just me and Tanya uh, running this company together with no one working with us um, permanently. And then we started uh, more colleagues joined us and more friends joined us. And, and as that happens, you grow in confidence and you learn these skills. It For those people that are listening that want to make a future in the creative arts, it is a skill that's almost as critical as uh, any creative skill because almost nothing can be achieved as an individual in the world today. Uh, you could argue that as an artist, you can sit in your room designing to um, invisible clients on the other end of an email, but almost everything that has effect in the world has to be done through collaboration, through uh, collective um, uh, thought and effort. And that can only happen if everyone knows how to collaborate, if everyone knows how to 
uh, interact, communicate openly, and um, and and enjoy uh, the the efforts collectively together. And I very quickly realised that the ability to communicate intent, aspiration, and vision, and then listen, because obviously it's as critical that you listen in return. Uh, was a very critical attribute that you needed if you were to do what I was aspiring to do and my wife was aspiring to do. It's beautiful. And it's it's definitely, I love how humble you are and I love how open you are about knowing who you are internally and then also reflecting that on other people. I think one thing that would really benefit people that are listening to this, um, because a lot of our fans, they really... um, like to know and understand that there are difficulties. We all over have to overcome them. There's some things that you can remember that, you know, when we work on achieving the impossible is basically is kind of what we do on a daily basis. We're trying to bring forth things that don't exist in current and especially what you do at the workshop with your team is bringing things physically into the realm. Is there something that you can think of as a difficulty that you've over, overcome in your career and kind of those, you know, obstacles and how you manage to do so? It's a really that that's a very pertinent question, Ash, because you're absolutely right um, that all of us, uh, anyone that's listening that is pursuing a creative career, as equally as you create, you also have to navigate. You have to navigate your way through the ups and downs of the world. And I'm very much of the view that it's far better to scream along the highway at 100 kilometres an hour, occasionally hitting the hard shoulder and and brutally uh, smashing the car and damaging yourself than to potter along at 50 kilometres an hour, cautiously dodging the potholes, staying thoughtfully... uh, a left of the medium stroke. Now, in my own driving, I use this as a metaphor because in my own driving, I'm far more cautious. But <laughs> at a work mentality, there is there is a need to to. Um, I have a saying. It's it's. I've I've done a derivative of the wonderful Douglas Adams. Almost everything leads back to Douglas Adams, if you think about it, and. In, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he says that the art of flying is to throw yourself at the ground and miss. And um, hmm. I, I, I've sort of coined a new version of that, which is the art of innovation is to throw yourself at failure and miss. Hmm. What Everyone on the planet has a big enough brain to innovate, to, to creatively innovate. A- Ash is creatively innovating every day. Uh, All designers are doing this every second of every day of their lives. They're innovating new worlds, new ideas, new aspirations, new vision. Why doesn't the world innovate? Simply because they're they're afraid of failure. They're afraid of what innovative thinking may lead to. It's much easier to potter along at 50 kilometers an hour, dodging the potholes. It's much better to... um, aim for the destination in life as opposed to just enjoying the journey. And uh, to me, um, I I see that, um, you know, to even pick out one one area that was a challenge that we got over would be um, in some way under under, um, rating every day. 
I, I think it, you come at it the opposite. Um, every single day that I wake up, and this has been for 27 years, I can't wait to get to the workshop. Now, the workshop is going to, in my day, throw up any number of extraordinary challenges, some, some days insurmountable challenges because a client has asked us to do something that has not been done before, that we don't know how to do, uh, that we don't have the skills, abilities, techniques or equipment to do. Um, but I, I see that that is the very um, lifeblood of what we do. That's what gets you up in the morning to enjoy the day. It's the, mm. the, the aspiration to conquer those collective challenges every day with your friends and create a result that you are pleased about. At no time have I ever aspired for us to be the best in the world. There are incredible people in the world doing incredible work and arguably a damn sight better than us in many cases. What I do aspire is for our workshop to be the best we can be in the world, the, the, the best we can do ourselves in the world. I don't see it as a competition with our with that with other effects workshops. I see it as a um, an aspiration within ourselves to just do the best we possibly can, and that requires you taking on uh, these challenges. You know, if you think about something like Lord of the Rings, and as I've described it before, you're offered the opportunity to look after five departments on a trilogy of films on the largest film project possibly ever undertaking. Only 28 of your staff have ever worked on a film or TV show before. <laughs> you have to produce 48,000 separate things and <laughs> justice to the written work of Tolkien, to the fans of Tolkien's literature. So you stand at the edge of a precipice and your toes are over the edge and you have the sensation that should you step back, the next seven years is going to be less impacting on you. But at some point, if you are to embrace life, you have to step over the edge and you have to go into free fall. And you may fall for quite a while, and it's an incredibly scary experience as the wind rushes past you. But what a rest your fall. It is not, uh, you don't, you know, you, you, you can't pull a James Bond parachute out of your pack. What a rest your fall is the confidence that you have in the collaboration of the people around you. You can't do it alone. If you think you can do it alone, you're going to smack into the bottom of the cliff and, and end up in a fairly messy way. What you do, of course, is you start to engage and appreciate and embrace that extraordinary group of like-minded people around you to take on the challenge. No matter how fine or how complex the challenge, there is an individual that can do it and do it well. And to me... Um, Every day in some way is like that. It's about getting together with this like-minded thinkers and doers and uh, problem-solving on the fly and, and breaking down the, the challenges as they appear and, um, and so on and so on. 
that was incredible. And I think that that's going to really, really inspire everybody because, yeah, I mean, that was when I would watch those appendices. Like, it was so great to see, um, you know, the difficulty that you're up against and working with such a young team and being a leader for that young team and facilitating that. And that's absolutely it. I think there's a lot of um, connections between you, yourself, and many prolific people. And after meeting you and, and getting a very brief encounter with you, I wanted a lot more time, obviously. I've been wanting to meet you for such a long time, and I got pulled away. I was so, <laughs> so upset about that, but it's okay. Um, we'll have more times in the future, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, you're very, I look at you as being a very prolific person, and there's only so many people in this world that are living at that level. How do you manage your day to day? What's a, an average day look like for you? Because you're obviously married and you have children, which are very important. That's already a full time occupation, just being a parent. And then you also have all these employees and you run this workshop and you're working for these big names and these companies and these different projects. And when you listed off all the things that you were a part of, I just I thought I was busy and I just looked at myself like I didn't I wasn't doing anything in comparison. I thought that was really quite great. And so I was just more or less curious about how you manage your day to day and kind of some methodologies that you've uh, uh, found along the way. Yep. Yeah. Um, um, my assistant can fold time. Uh, uh, that's <laughs> the first thing. And no, sa- sadly you can't clone yourself and you can't fold time. Yeah. So, uh, I, I rely very heavily on uh, my assistant, Ree, who uh, implements uh, my schedule because if I, if I implemented my own schedule, I would always allow the creative discussion to lead my day and I wouldn't um, allow more, uh, arguably sometimes more critical discussions around business, legal uh, uh, employment, uh, etc., to get in the way of the creative process. But of course, you can't be that. Um, you have to be more pragmatic than that. Uh, just at a very practical level, one of the things that I implemented 18 years ago at the beginning of Lord of the Rings, and those that watch the behind the scenes footage will see this on me, is. Um, I started wearing a radio telephone and a headset. <laughs> and this may sound like a trivial and, and obvious thing to some, but the way that we've managed to clone ourselves in the workshop is through radio telephone headsets. Right now we have, I think, 19 of our staff on those radio telephones, each of them wears a headset, each of them has an earpiece. Now, why is that so critical? It's because you can utilize them, obviously, for navigation. Hey, where are you in the workshop? I need to talk to you. You can use them for communication. Hey, um, can you just tell me if X, Y, and Z? But most importantly, you use them for inspiration. You use them for an open mic community where hey, I've got an idea, but if I call a meeting, it's not going to be booked till Tuesday a week from now, and by that time my inspiration is lost and seven people have to come together for an hour and then they've got to get their coffees and then they sit in the boardroom and we have a chat. Rather, what you want in a perfect world is a continually synchronized brain trust of people interacting and thinking and doing all together all at the same time. And how we use the RTs is that we use them to keep an open 
fluid dialogue of of interactive inspiration and commentary and thoughts and processes. Wow. And that opens up an ability to do a vast amount more than if you're a meeting-based, uh, got-to-send-a-text-based, uh, email-based manager. Um, it keeps me – I can be giving a talk to – a group of school kids or, you know, when you came and visited me and I presented our company to you for half an hour, I still had a constant stream of discussion and ideas and thoughts going through my ear and into my brain that I could stay associated with, that I could listen to. And uh, that's a a pragmatic technique. With respect to... um, uh, you know, how, how do you fit all this in? Of course, you have amazing people that facilitate it with you. But for me personally, I, it's critical to me that my children and my family don't get impacted by my almost obsessive desire to be this, um, this productive. And when I say family, that includes the wider circle of my family. It's very important to me that... I service my father's needs uh, now that he uh, is living by himself. And so I call him a minimum of three times a week, sometimes every day of the week, because that's important. It's a priority. Um, and uh, and it, it, it is critical that those things don't get lost in the busyness of life. But, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, life should be a rolling feast, uh, and you make the choice of foods on the table that you feast from. And uh, you have to enjoy that choice of foods. And if you enjoy it, if you enjoy the feast, you embrace it. You 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 engage with it. You give it what it needs. Um, and uh, you work whatever hours it takes. Um, and, and that, you know, in our case, that's a lot of hours. But... I don't ever see work as work and home as home. I see the work as being um, all part of the social dynamic of this wonderful rolling feast that we set off on 27 years ago and will hopefully keep going on until we fall over. And uh, and that's, um, you know, a good spirit, a spirited way to think about it in my view uh, and one that I enjoy uh, tackling every day. Beautiful. Then on that note, I mean, that's a great, great way to end it because you're talking about your balance and yourself and how you, you know, go through your days. And it's really great. And I'm really inspired. And thank you so much. Um, thank you, Rhi, as well, for setting this up. I really appreciate it. And for you giving your time to everybody, it's it's a very kind gesture. Thank you so much. And uh, I really can't wait to share this with everybody. It's been incredible. Well, very good. Well, in another year, if you want to do it again and catch up, um, please just let me know. And I hope I catch up with you and Andrew in person again one day. And uh, my best to all your listeners. I hope I get to work with some of you in the future yes. or catch up with you at conventions or um, just generally, I hope that what we do continues to bring some enjoyment to people uh, that may be listening because uh, that's definitely what our intent is. Um, yeah onwards and upwards and that concludes this week's episode big thank yous to Richard Taylor for coming on the show and sharing his time with us this week 
Also, big thank yous to Ree Streeter for cutting out time from Richard's really incredibly busy schedule to make this all happen. You can find links to Weta Workshop's work and all of the show notes for this week's episode at thecollectivepodcast.com slash 133, along with links to our Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes podcast page. Have an amazing day, everybody. You know the drill. Be powerful. Be prolific. Peace out.